Welcome to CME on ReachMD. The following activity titled, A Learner Pathway in Moderate to Severe AD, Expert Mentoring on Challenging Patient Cases, a Care Team Forum, is jointly provided by Advancing Knowledge in Healthcare, Incorporated, and RMEI Medical Education, LLC. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. The past few years have brought changes to how we understand and treat atopic dermatitis. Changes which have ushered in questions such as, what is the atopic march? And can it be prevented? How and when should a biologic be used for eczema? And what about an in infancy? And what treatments are currently in the pipeline? Hello, I'm Dr. Peter Leo, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Dr. Eric Simpson and Dr. Mark Boganievich in today's program to discuss these challenging questions. We also have Pam with us. Pam is a nurse, but also a patient of mine who's joining us today to share her journey with atopic dermatitis. Dr. Boganievich, maybe you could start us out by explaining to us what is the atopic march and how do you think about it in your practice? Um, sure, Dr. Leo. Um, the atopic march is the progression of several diseases, typically starting with atopic dermatitis, followed by food allergies, asthma, and allergic rhinitis, and some would even consider eosinophilic esophagitis as a late manifestation of the atopic march. Pam, maybe you can make it real for us. Do you feel that you had any experiences with the atopic march? Do you feel like you have other conditions that were related or connected with your eczema? Well, my eczema obviously has been since I was six months old. Now, I had no food allergies that I know of. We did do the whole thing as um, the whole testing of different foods, trying different foods. Nothing really came up to be uh, allergies for me in that sense. But I did have the seasonal allergies. You know, I was allergic to dusts and um, I was allergic to, I had hay fever when I was young, the green grass, the, as uh, plants were dying in the fall. So my allergies were year round. So that really made my skin much worse throughout time. Um, and I'm 64. So it, did, it was a process. Interesting. So no food allergies mm -hmm. or asthma, but definitely some other things like rhinitis and maybe even the, the seasonal allergies with right. eye involvement as well. Dr. Simpson, when you think about the pathophysiology of atopic dermatitis, we've come a huge, huge way from where we started even 10 years ago. What do you think about how our understanding is shaping the ability to develop new treatments? Yeah, so we're realizing that all inflammation in the skin is not the same. So um, patients with psoriasis have a certain type of inflammation in their skin, which is completely different than patients with atopic dermatitis. Uh, patients and dermatologists who treat psoriasis have been fortunate. They've understood these uh, molecular pathways. They've been able to block those pathways and actually bring patients with severe psoriasis a lot of help. Um, there's maybe seven or eight treatment, targeted treatments for psoriasis right now, and patients have really uh, done well with those. In atopic dermatitis, we haven't had those. We haven't had those targeted approaches. So we're starting to understand that the inflammation is different. It's a, a more of a what we call type 2 uh, cytokine disease, uh, and so we're understanding it's a, it's a different molecular pathway, a different communication pathway, uh, and, um, and we'll be talking about how we target these type 2 cytokines to help this condition. 
It's amazing because we really see that the development of therapies goes hand in hand with an understanding of the molecular mechanisms of a disease. And we've had such a dearth of knowledge about what's truly driving it. We haven't had good targets, but finally we're getting there. Dr. Boganiewicz, when you think about moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, which is a group that really suffers, you know, if you're on the milder side, some of the basic things like good moisturization or topical corticosteroids, they can give a lot of relief. But as you get more functionally severe, maybe it doesn't even necessarily look bad, but as you're more refractory and not responding, uh, we really have needed some help there. Has your approach changed in recent years or what have you been begun to use more recently to help with those more difficult patients? Right. So, For sure, our approach has changed or has evolved based on some of the exciting, um, you know, work that has come out in the understanding of the disease. And there's so much in that. It's so easy to say, you know, topical steroids have been, you know, the key uh, topical that we've been prescribing for over 50 years. But, you know, with that message comes the important thing about discussing, you know, the risk benefits. Because if we don't do it, patients go out and find that information on the internet or from other sources, and then that leads to all sorts of misunderstanding, then we find out that patients are hesitant to use those medications, for example, even during a flare. And so we're always chasing after that, you know, after that inflammatory process has already started. going beyond topical steroids for uh, close to 20 years now. We've had topical calcineurin inhibitors that are approved in this country down to two years of age. Uh, The problem is that, uh, you know, they carry this boxed warning that is concerning to our patients and their families. So again, we need to educate them about the risks, benefits. And most recently, we've had uh, crisoboral, a topical uh, PDE4 inhibitor uh, for patients with mild to moderate disease. So if that still isn't sufficient at that moderate to severe end, Um, or the patient just needs to be putting on these ridiculous amounts of topical medicine that's just not practical, especially if you get to school age or older patients. Or overuse. Uh, Of course. Uh, Then we think about systemic drugs. Now, the irony here is that the only one that's approved in the U.S. um, are systemic steroids, and yet that is a class of drug that we are, you know, strongly advising patients not to use or to really minimize their use. All of the others, including cyclosporin, uh, methotrexate, mycophenolate, uh, azathioprine, are not indicated for atopic dermatitis uh, for any age. And yet we've been forced to over the years uh, to use those. Um, But again, there you have to have a serious discussion about risks versus benefits. Now, Pam, when you think about these, you've actually experienced them as yes, a patient. Can absolutely. How did they work for you? What was your experience? Well, I mean, when I was younger, we only had the ointments. That was it. You only had the topical things. You could soak in Don Burrow, you'd wrap up in plastic, and, you know, they helped a little bit, helped the itch a little bit. But if I was in major problems and just itching, I would be go to the ER, get some Benadryl, start on prednisone. That was the end-all, be-all to clear up. And, and you know as well as I do, then you flare afterwards if it truly is going to continue. Now, I finally realized the prednisone wasn't going to help anymore. I needed something more. 
So I finally, and, and I think the dermatologists that I saw were not comfortable with, they didn't understand the process. And, you know, it was frustrating for them, I'm sure, too, but there was never a plan of care. Do the ointments, whatever, nothing really helped. So I did research and I found an atopic dermatitis. Dr. Leo took me on as a patient, thank you. And we went through the whole gamut of things. You know, um, I did the bleach baths, the wrapping up with the ointments and everything. And I just said to him, there's got to be something more. So we did the, the cyclosporin. I broke out in, into infections. That didn't work for me. Methotrexate, you know, my cholesterol went up, but my skin didn't get any better. Um, then I was on the uh, epremolis. Um, I think you pronounce, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but that I had weight loss, but no, you know, which I loved, but the skin didn't get any better. So I went through all these and I'm like, I need something, nothing, you know, it's this itch is driving me crazy. It's all about the itch, the not sleeping, not being able to do the things you love to do. So those are, you know, the frustrations. Thank you, Pam. Dr. Simpson, what about this shift from systemic immunosuppression? We heard from Pam sort of how when you just shut down everything, you can have the risk of infections. Of course, none of these drugs are labeled to now what we're seeing is more targeted therapy. Sure, yeah. I think um, the nice thing about what we were talking about, the pathophysiology and kind of better understanding these immune circuits is that we can now identify what are the most important cytokines and inflammatory pathways to target. And so... Uh, there is a new drug that's FDA-approved for atopic dermatitis in, in adolescents and adults uh, from moderate to severe disease not responding to topical therapy and who are candidates for systemic therapy, uh, and that's dupilumab. And we talked about TH2 cytokines and type 2 cytokines, uh, and it turns out that dupilumab targets IL-4 and IL-13. And those are two very important cytokines that are over uh, overabundant in the skin of patients with atopic dermatitis, uh, also overabundant in the in the blood in the system uh, in patients with atopic dermatitis. And so, fortunately, uh, that has now been targeted, and uh, patients are really getting significant relief. So, uh, we did some of those studies, uh, phase three studies of dupilumab in in, in adult patients. Uh, and they, when I when I talk to my patients about the data. I say you can you can expect about a 70 to 80 percent reduction in your atopic dermatitis, which is on par or much better than any of these traditional systemics that we've been using. Uh, and you can also I tell my patients even without the use of topical steroids that you can expect over a 50 percent reduction in your itch level as well. So in in my practice, uh, the addition of dupilumab uh, has really like changed changed. My practice changed my patients' lives uh, and has been just a great addition to as an option for these patients who are failing topical therapy. So by being targeted and just really picking on IL-4 and IL-13, it has a very different side effect profile than the traditional immunosuppressants, but it's not free of all side effects. What are you concerned about or what are you counseling your patients about? Sure. I'd say the, the two most common and what I, what, what I counsel my patients uh, is the development of uh, conjunctivitis, so that's irritation of the of the conjunctiva. So patients, uh, this is may, occurs maybe in ten to twenty percent of patients uh, in some of the um, uh, clinical trials that are uh, in clinical practice. Some of the studies from clinical practice show that number may be a little bit higher, maybe even twenty to thirty percent of patients. And the the symptoms of conjunctivitis from dupilumab uh, range, but they can often be uh, dry eye, a little bit of uh, redness. Uh, and irritation, sometimes tearing. 
Uh, and but in the trials so far, most of those uh, most of that conjunctivitis is mild to moderate, and most actually resolved while the patient was still on therapy. So I would be interested to hear from Pam if she had have has experienced anything like this uh, on your treatment. Well, I did have the dry. I, I've been on Diplomab now for two and a half years. No, two years, just over two years probably. But I do have the dry eye, but I think that keeping up with it and realizing that you're going to need more drops, you just stay on it, especially after the injection. You know that that's going to be time when it's going to be higher. So I do the drops every couple hours. I just take them with me and do the drops because I'm not going to get off Diplomat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. Can I just interject that an interesting observation because dupilumab has now been uh, studied and approved in both asthma and um, chronic rhinitis uh, with sinusitis and nasal polyps. Um, And in those diseases, you don't see that frequency of conjunctivitis. We know that a number of our patients start out with conjunctivitis, but I think what Dr. Simpson um, and what you, Pam, have described, you know, is really a real phenomenon that we see in atopic uh, dermatitis. Thank you. Pam, so you had, as you've you've described, experience with dupilumab for the past couple of years, but before that, you even got to try tofacitinib or tofa. Yes, thanks to you. Yes, I was able to do that, which... What was that like? Yeah. The the tofa at least took the itch away. I mean, I think if you know your patients, it's all about the itch. You cannot live with that itch. Just think of one little mosquito bite. Think of that all over your body. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just amazing that it just takes everything away. You know, it's just all about the itch. But the TOFA did take away the itch. So I was relieved. I just realized that it took that away, but it didn't clear up my skin. So for me, I mean, that's been a godsend. Uh, The Diplomat has made my life so different. It really has. I mean, my skin is, while it's not perfectly clear, and I still want it to be perfectly clear, so I still am looking for the perfect drug, at least It's something that that was for our disease. You know, it's been terrible that we've had nothing except ointments. You know, now we at least can see the future of other other things to try that are going to work with you. You know, so I don't have the sleepless nights. I'm not scratching all the time. And I don't care if I have to do a shot every day to get the relief that I got is great. Yeah. What about some of the other JAK inhibitors that are being developed and some of the other antibodies in biologic therapies that are in development? Yeah, I mean, Peter, you've been, it seems like you all have been on the forefront of, uh, of trying new things and uh, trying targeted therapies. Tofacitinib is a JAK inhibitor, which is a really exciting uh, area of development. So I'll start with the targeted therapies. So, uh, you know, um, with the advent of dupilumab and by blocking IL-4 and IL-13, now we understand that those are really important cytokines to the disease. And so other companies uh, and researchers are trying to say, hey, what about if we just block IL-13 alone? And so there's two drugs, trelakinumab uh, and lebrikizumab, who target only IL-13, not the IL-4 and IL-13 like dupilumab. Uh, and they're, they have positive responses in their early studies, and they're in the last phase of studies. So it'll be really interesting to see if they can get the same efficacy that dupilumab has uh, with maybe fewer side effects or a different dosing strategy. Mm. Other possible uh, cytokines that have been targeted, 
IL-31, which is the itch cytokine. That's, a, that's also a type 2 cytokine. It's, in, it's an interesting molecule. The, the receptor for, that mole, for IL-31 is on the, is on the nerves, actually, and it's re, it's, we call it the itch cytokine. And uh, the early studies have shown it has really significant and rapid reduction in itch. I think the outstanding question is, is how much is it going to help the rash part of the disease? Mm-hmm. Um, and then other targeted therapies, uh, your skin actually is also a source for cytokines. And so there's uh, some phase two studies to show that these more proximal or more upstream cytokines that can begin inflammation, uh, that we're starting to target those and seeing some uh, interesting effects uh, such as TSLP, uh, interleukin-33, uh, and uh, interferon alpha. So those are the, the targeted. That's what I think is really interesting coming down the pipeline. Uh, you mentioned tofacitinib. You've been on tofacitinib. This mm-hmm. is JAK inhibition. Mm-hmm. And that, those are the nice thing about JAK inhibitors is that they're oral. So you can take, you take a pill instead of a shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually don't block the cytokine, but they block the cytokine signal within a cell. So they go into the cell and can block this, how the cytokines talk to the inside the cell. And there's actually three companies in phase three looking at oral JAK inhibitors for atopic dermatitis, moderate to severe. And they're actually very interesting. The data really support your experience uh, in that they have rapid itch reduction uh, and really significant reduction in atopic dermatitis. Now, I'm so glad that we're doing things for adults, but what are we doing for infants and children? It is interesting that, um, and certainly gratifying that the companies uh, that are developing the new treatments are looking at younger populations Mm -hmm. because so many of the drugs previously were studied in adults with recalcitrant severe disease. Maybe the right population is a younger population that's not necessarily gotten to that really severe, you know, phase of the disease. So we need more studies. And uh, since we've discussed dupilumab here, um, we recognize that uh, we need to be going, you know, into a younger patient population. So while it's currently approved down to 12 years of age, we have done studies in children with severe atopic dermatitis is down to six years of age, and hopefully that data will lead to an FDA indication. But there are studies going down to infants as young as six months of age, which is pretty remarkable. So I'd like to ask Dr. Leo, I know that you've recently published a case series on the off-label use of dupilumab in a pediatric population. So can you share those results with us? Absolutely. You know, they were um, all situations where we felt we had exhausted everything. And unfortunately, you can get to that point pretty quickly because there are very few things approved for these moderate to severe kids. So we did sort of the next natural step, which in pediatric dermatology, frankly, we're pretty used to doing. We take things that are indicated for adults and try them in kids uh, after having a long discussion with the family. These were, again, kids who had failed a lot of the, the traditional things in the family, felt the quality of life was at such peril that doing something like this was worth the risk. And I'm happy to report that it was, as you might hope, very similar to what we've seen in the adolescent study and the adult study. They all kind of nicely mirror each other. Really nice improvement, relatively nice safety profile, uh, obviously in a very limited cohort. So to me, it's more of the promise that this makes sense for this group of patients who is certainly underserved, who certainly suffers a lot. Of course, the whole family suffers. When the patient's not sleeping, nobody sleeps. So we really feel we can help a lot. And I'm excited that there finally are some studies and that there is some 
push from the FDA to get these medicines to people who need them because we know at the end of the day, this is still largely a pediatric disease. So if we're only looking at our adults, that takes care of them very nicely, but there's still a huge group that needs help. Dr. Simpson, what about the psychosocial aspect? We talked about the sleep ramifications on everybody, but we know that ripples out even further. There's a tremendous amount of interplay between this. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think, um, I think, if, I think you have to think as a dermatologist beyond the skin. When you're not sleeping your whole life and you have lots of inflammation in your body, you're at risk for developing anxiety symptoms, depression symptoms, uh, even things like ADHD and autism can be seen uh, more, more commonly in patients with atopic dermatitis uh, than those without. So I think it's important to understand all the different dimensions uh, of, the, of the condition and all the different uh, ways it can affect a patient. Uh, and so I, you know, I think there's simple ways to, to gauge this and understand this in your, in your patients, just ask. You know, ask about how the disease uh, affects you, not, you know, not just from a symptom-wise, but in your whole life. And so I like to, to uh, ask about school, work, uh, activities, what kind of things does this uh, interrupt in your life? Um, and, and then ask about the other conditions that uh, may go along with atopic dermatitis, like the allergic symptoms as well. So asthma, hay fever, uh, food allergy. And if it's, a, if it's a big component of the condition or is also there and has not been properly addressed, uh, we, use our, we use a kind of a multidisciplinary approach and use our allergy colleagues, use our mental health colleagues uh, to help us take care, of the, take care of the patient. And if that's not the perfect example of a vicious cycle, I don't know what is. You have a stressful event flaring the disease. The disease flare causes more stress, and you get stuck in a loop with this. Pam, you lived it. Just like I did, yes. I had uh, my uh, parents were elderly. They died within a two-year period of time, and then I had to manage an estate for my mother with nine siblings. So talk about chaos. I mean, and I would find when I would talk with them about different aspects and the the estate went on for three years, so it just made it even worse. Every time someone would call me, I'd flare up because what have you done now and what's going on with it? And that really was the nail in the coffin for me. That really turned the corner. Dupilumab on quality of life. It's been studied. It's been measured. What have you found, and what does this suggest for therapies like this in general? Sure, yeah. I mean, that's a nice thing. We, you know, I talked earlier about the reduction in itch, the reduction in the skin disease itself by, you know, 70 80%. But some of the most gratifying stories you hear, and, and also the data supports that, is, are these downstream uh, effects of the condition. So um, uh, du- the Dupilumab studies, even at 16 weeks, found that patients are sleeping better compared to uh, uh, patients getting placebo, uh, that their quality of life is much improved, so better activity, better sleep, reduced pain, uh, and that even their anxiety and depressive symptoms reduce just in 16 weeks of, on, of being on the drug. So, uh, you know, the data is really clear that, uh, you know, it, it's not just a, it doesn't, the dupilumab doesn't just improve the skin, but improves itch symptoms as well as improve people's quality of life. And I, I find that most gratifying as a clinician. Fantastic. Maybe, Dr. Boganiewicz, you can tell us a little bit about how you incorporate shared decision-making, especially when you think about the pediatric patient and their family in your practice. 
Yes. So um, I think that um, it's going to depend on the age of the child, right? Um, I think that, again, we need to start out by educating our parents, caregivers, about the fact that this may be a long journey and they have to, you know, deal with a chronic disease, that this isn't like an acute intervention for strep throat or an ear infection. Because oftentimes, you know, parents will describe failure of a treatment in their eyes. And then when you, you know, really question that, it turns out that, no, the, the, you know, the medication is working. They just thought that it was going to lead to a cure. So when they discontinue it, the disease comes back. So we need to, you know, get a sense of, you know, uh, the family's belief systems and what they're willing to accept. And we don't want to overwhelm them right away because there's so much complexity. Complexity uh, to this potentially. So again, um, you know, we use different strategies. Uh, sometimes a busy clinician may not have the time. Uh, some families like written information, so you want to make that available. You want to give them, you know, credible sources to go to if they really like to find their information out there on the internet. Um, we give them written plans. We have nurse educators sometimes who may, you know, uh, be much better at communicating things at a level that the family is comfortable with. And we want to make sure that uh, they are accepting of the treatment, not that we're just dictating a certain treatment for that child. And as I mentioned, as we get closer to adolescence, we really want those patients uh, participating in and knowing what, what this is really about. I don't know, Dr. Simpson, if you want to add to that? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think uh, the perfect time when I use kind of a, sh- a shared, traditional shared decision-making approach is, um, is, when they ha- is when we have choices to make and decisions to make. Uh, and so I, and I think moving to a systemic is the perfect time for that discussion uh, because there, it's not an easy choice and there are options out there. So there are off-label options, the traditional cyclosporin methotrexate. Mm-hmm. There's dupilumab, now FDA approved. Uh, and so I have, a, I have a conversation about what the, what the, what the goal is it, do I understand what the patient's goal is in treatment? What, uh, what are their preferences? And then I go over the options, and I usually t- will talk about, still talk about their traditional options as well as dupilumab, go over the differences, go over the risk, uh, risks and benefits of each one, and, hope, and, and, and use language appropriate for that patient, uh, and, and try to empower them to then choose what sounds best for them and with their, that's in line with their preferences. You know, I think that the thing that helped or helps the patients the most is having an understanding of what the treatment is. Find the right person to partnership. You know, you want to find a physician you can speak with and that will give you guidelines. I want to see it in writing. You know, a lot of them will throw drugs at you and say, go ahead and take these ointments and, you know, don't go over really what... Um, what you do and how much, or you may have said that, but the patient doesn't hear that. They're like, they hear that they're going to be clear, but they don't hear how much, where to put it, how long to do it. So you have to have guidelines. Thank you all for a wonderful discussion. Now that we've shared Pam's experience with you, we would like to hear from you. Do you have a challenging atopic dermatitis case that you'd like us to discuss? Let us know by filling out the case submission form, and we'll contact you if your case is selected for discussion in our upcoming case series. That's it for today. Thank you for participating in this CARE Team Forum. Please don't forget to take the post-test and complete the evaluation to receive your CME credit. This activity was jointly provided by Advancing Knowledge in Healthcare, Incorporated 
and RMEI Medical Education, LLC. To receive your free CME credit, please be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation by visiting reachmd.com CME. Thank you for joining us.